Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you get your Bibles out, open them up to Deuteronomy, the seventh chapter. Deuteronomy chapter 7, that's where we're going to begin in just a moment as we open up God's Word for these next few minutes. There'll be lots of Bible this morning in this part of our worship, and so uh, you will help yourself, and in fact, you will help me as well if you'll be following along in the Scriptures and checking the things that I have to say alongside the Word of God. Deuteronomy chapter 7. As you're turning there, I'll say how great it is to see everybody this morning. I'm so glad that you have chose to be here and are able to be here. I'm glad that those faint traces of snow on the ground didn't hinder anyone from being able to be here today and to uh, be able to be with your brothers and sisters and people of like uh, mind and like precious faith to engage in these activities of worship and the encouragement and edification that we gain from them. I hope that you're ready right now to give reverent attention to the Word of the Lord. In Deuteronomy, the seventh chapter... As Moses is giving the instructions to the Israelite people for whenever they come into the land of Canaan, he tells them in Deuteronomy the 7th chapter, I'm reading here in verse 25, Deuteronomy 7 and in verse 25, Moses says to the people, he says that those carved images of their gods, that is the gods of the Canaanites, you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. Now I don't think there's anything new or surprising about those verses. I don't think anybody read those verses just now and thought to themselves, Whoa! God hates idols. Wow, I I never knew that before. No. All of us, I'm guessing, before we ever even came to church this morning, anybody who has any familiarity with the Bible at all knows how God feels about idols. Everybody knows that the Old Testament just brims with references to idols and to idolatry and all of it, all of it is bad. The children of Israel escaped from the idolatrous land of Egypt And within just a matter of a few short weeks, they are bowing down and worshiping a metal cow. And that, of course, is just the beginning. In Numbers, the 25th chapter, they are worshiping the gods of the Midianites. And when they then get into the land of Canaan, they they just can't stop. They started, and now they just seemingly cannot stop. It's Baal, it's the Asherah. It's Molech, it's Dagon, it's idol temples, it's idol statues, it's idolatry again and again and again and again and again and again. And I'm going to guess that you already knew that. That yes, idols, bad. God hates them. God wanted His people, as Deuteronomy 7 says, He wants His people to detest and abhor idols. And repeatedly, God had to send His prophets. We're reading this year in the prophets, and this is one of the things that we're going to see again and again and again. Prophets come to rebuke the children of Israel for their idolatry. Prophets come to call them to repentance. And quite regularly, those same prophets have to announce God's judgment upon the people for idolatry. I think it's safe to say that idolatry was the main problem. It was the main sin throughout the Old Testament. Okay. How many idols did you see last week? How many people stopped you and asked, Hey, 
Where's the local idol temple here in Somerset? I'm trying to find where I can worship some idols. I'm guessing that didn't happen to you this week. We don't live in a world that is full of idols and idolatry the way it was in Bible times. There are not shrines to Artemis or altars to Baal on every street corner. And so as a result, we sometimes, we sometimes maybe don't feel like we can fully relate to a passage like Deuteronomy 7, 25 and 26. Because for us, we think the idea of worshiping an idol, well, well that's just dumb. Bowing down to a hunk of metal to some statue of some thing, man, that's, that's just stupid. In my office downstairs, I have one of those little bobblehead statuette figurines of Hoops and Yo-Yo, the little characters from the Hallmark cards that Tiffany got me several years ago. I have never thought to myself, hey, you know what? I ought to burn a little bit of incense to Hoops and Yo-Yo right now. That thought has never occurred to me. Why? Because it's stupid. Why would anybody do such a thing? And so when we read about idolatry in the Bible, we tend to think of that almost as being, well, as being kind of irrelevant to us today. Deuteronomy 7 doesn't really apply to me today. Hashtag not my problem. Well, can I share with you another verse in your Bible, this time in the New Testament? Look with me in 1 John. In 1 John, the fifth chapter, I want you to notice how the Apostle John concludes his epistle. In 1 John, the fifth chapter, I'm reading in verse 21. In 1 John 5 and in verse 21, John says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, somebody's going to look at that verse and they're going to try to explain that away by saying, well, Josh, of course, John had to write there about idols because, well, even in New Testament times, there was still idolatry. Don't you know that there were pagans who worshipped idols and went down to the idol temple? And if you've lived in Rome or Corinth or Ephesus or Antioch, I mean, idols were just everywhere. But wait, 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 wait. 1 John 5 verse 21 isn't written to pagan folks. It's not written to idol worshipers. 1 John 5.21 is written to Christians. And you need to know that that is not the only place in the New Testament where Christians are warned about idolatry. The Apostle Paul will write about idolatry several times in his epistles. In fact, those passages in the New Testament that talk about adulterers and adulteresses, did you know? that those words are actually related to idolatry as well? And so before you and I decide that we're going to relegate idolatry to being a purely Old Testament problem, what we need to do is we need to stop and we need to think long and hard about how the battle between God and idols, that battle is continuing to be waged even to this day. And we need to think about how you and I are likewise called to detest and abhor idols. My goal for us this morning is to drag the problem of idolatry out of the Old Testament world and place it squarely in front of our eyes so that we can see how idols continue to be a problem for God's people even in the year 2021. We need to know what idolatry is. We need to know what kind of forms idolatry can take. And furthermore, we need to understand why it is that God wants us to detest and abhor them. And so buckle up this morning. It might get a little bit bumpy. In fact, it might get a little bit uncomfortable 
as we talk about idols. And I think all of that just needs to begin by asking the question, well, well, what exactly is idolatry? What exactly are we talking about when we talk about an idol? I think we need to start there because probably I think we're inclined to say, well, well, duh, Josh, everybody knows what an idol is. Idolatry is falling down to worship a golden statue like those people in Old Testament times did, fell down and worshiped that metal cow. Everybody knows that's what an idol is. But you know, saying that idolatry is simply worshiping a graven image, that would be kind of like saying that the sin that Adam and Eve committed in Genesis chapter 3 was eating fruit. Yes, Adam and Eve did eat fruit, and there were some problems with them eating that fruit. But you know what? There was a whole lot more going on there than just eating fruit. And in much the same way, when we talk about idolatry, there's a whole lot more going on there than just falling down before a graven image. I think we could define idolatry in this way, that an idol is anything that occupies the preeminent position in our lives other than God. We'll say that again. An idol is anything that we put in the place that only God and God alone can and should occupy. Can I show you that in the Bible? Look with me in the Old Testament, Hosea chapter 2. In Hosea chapter 2 this week, our Bible reading is going to bring us to the book of Hosea, so let's just go ahead and grab a little bit of that. In Hosea chapter 2, listen to what the prophet says in verse 16. In Hosea chapter 2, I think you'll see this idea of replacing God right here in this verse. In Hosea 2 and in verse 16, the prophet says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Do you see there? Do you see how the people in Hosea's time, they had put Baal in God's place. They had taken an idol and put it in the position that God should have occupied. And while that certainly speaks of putting a false god or putting a pagan image in God's place, you need to understand that it's not just limited to that. Look in the New Testament now in Colossians, please. In Colossians, the third chapter, Paul makes reference here to idolatry. And I want you to notice he's not talking about a physical statue. He's not at all. In Colossians 3, I'm reading in verse 5. In Colossians 3 and in verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Do you see there? Covetousness, Paul says. Covetousness can take the place of God. One translation actually renders that verse, Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Now obviously that doesn't mean that that person is literally bowing down and worshiping their big house or they're literally bowing and worshiping their new truck or worshiping their PlayStation 5. No, what it means is that that person is finding in things what he ought to be finding only in the Lord. I'm going to say again that a thing becomes an idol whenever I lean on something, whenever I hope in something, whenever I find refuge in something, whenever I'm trying to find satisfaction and joy in something, when I'm trying to live for something, when I am organizing my life around something, 
other than God. That's an idol. And that's how you become an idolater. And how's God feel about that? Well, God hates it. He does. He absolutely hates it. There is no sin in the Old Testament that the Bible spends more time talking about how utterly awful and reprehensible and unacceptable this is to God than idolatry. And so, for example, look with me again in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 16. In Deuteronomy 16, the Lord here, He speaks about the Asherah, those idols that existed in Canaan, and those idols that would continue to be a thorn in the side of the Israelites. He says in Deuteronomy 16, and in verse 22, Deuteronomy 16, verse 22, He says, You shall not set up a pillar, that's the Asherah, which the Lord your God hates. How many sins are there in Scripture where the Lord says specifically and explicitly, I hate that? Truth is, that's actually kind of a short list. And idolatry is on that list. Look in 1 Kings now, in 1 Kings the 16th chapter. In 1 Kings chapter 16, I want you to just notice the language that the Bible uses, that God uses to describe idolatry. As He talks here about the works of Omri, who was the king of Israel at this time. In 1 Kings the 16th chapter, look in verse 26. In 1 Kings 16 and in verse 26, Omri walked in all the way of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord the God of Israel to anger by their idols. I'm going to ask once again, how many sins are there in the Bible where it is specifically stated that that, that thing provokes the Lord God to anger? Once again, idolatry is one of those things. Look in 2 Chronicles, please, in 2 Chronicles 15. In 2 Chronicles 15, just notice here the vocabulary that the Lord is building for idols. In 2 Chronicles 15, we've already got hatred, provoke to anger. Let's add to that 2 Chronicles 15. I'm reading here in verse 8. In 2 Chronicles 15 and in verse 8, as soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah the son of Oded, he took courage and he put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin detestable. All of these words, all of these expressions that the Lord uses here, they not only help us to understand how it is that God feels about idols, but furthermore, these words and these ideas help us to understand how it is that we should feel about idols. That we too should detest and abhor idolatry. And here's the kicker. We need to detest it in all of its forms which means that we do need to get out of this golden statue mentality way of thinking about idols. And we need to think a little bit secondly about what exactly can be an idol. Because I want you to understand that the issue with idols is never the object itself. God didn't see that golden calf being built at the bottom of Mount Sinai and he just hates that calf and he just hates that gold and metal that was being used to make the calf. No, The gold and the metal and the calf itself are are, are neutral. It's about the heart behind the idol. It's about the motivation and what's going on with the building and the construction and the worshiping of that idol. With me in Ezekiel the 14th chapter. In Ezekiel chapter 14, there are some men who come to Ezekiel 
And they pretend to be interested in hearing the word of the Lord. But of course, God knows these people and He knows better. And so He kind of braces and warns Ezekiel up front. In Ezekiel 14 and in verse 3, He says, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and they have set a stumbling block of iniquity before their faces. Do you see there that this is about what we take into our hearts? If the definition of an idol, once again, is enthroning something into the exalted position that only God should occupy, then that speaks to an issue in a person's heart. It's placing something other than the Lord on the throne of my heart. Placing something other than the Lord at the center of my life and then revolving and ordering everything around that. In fact, many times... Many times idols are actually good things. I guess every now and then there are folks who idolize things that are, that are just wicked in, in and of themselves and through and through. But I think most of the time, at least for us, the things that become idols are things that are good things, but we then allow them to become ultimate things. And so, for example, let's just think for a few moments about some idols. Could I... Could I maybe allow my family to become an idol? The relationships that I have with my parents or a sibling or my children or other members of my family or maybe even a person that I'm dating and hoping one day to have a family with or maybe even thinking even further outside, thinking about my relationships with friends. Listen, God is very pro-family. I think that is absolutely clear in Scripture. But is it possible that I could be so tied up, so consumed with my family earthly relationships that those end up taking priority and precedence over fostering my relationship with the God of heaven? It's certainly possible. Let me ask this. What about, what about your job? What about where you work? What you do for a living? Could I ever allow my career to take up so much of my time and so much of my energy and so much of my focus and my just everything that I am that what I do for a living, my job ends up coming to define my existence and who and what I am. Maybe I should ask as well, what about, what about your hobbies? What about the things that you do for recreation? Whether that be sports or music or exercise, or travel. Is it possible that we can be more passionate and more interested and more involved in those activities and those pursuits than we are with God and with the things of God? Maybe thinking a little bit kind of outside the box, kind of some abstract things. What about the idols of, of knowledge or the idol of comfort or the idol of even physical health. I'll say once again, all of those things are, are good things. I think all of those things are blessings from the Lord. But what happens when my pursuit of those things, my pursuit of knowledge and gaining information, my pursuit of comfort and pleasure, my pursuit of even physical health, what happens when those things become so important to me that I will chase after them with all that I've got even if it means giving God a little bit less of me? Or dare I even say this, I almost shudder to even put this on the screen. What about the idol of politics? 
or patriotism. I must tell you that in the last 12 months, I have been gravely concerned for Christians who it seems have shown more fervor for elections, more allegiance to political parties and candidates, and more interest in the news that's coming out of Washington than they have to Jesus Christ and to His kingdom and to the inspired Word of God. Is it possible that I could make my love for America an idol? And of course, it's not just those half dozen things. It's anything. It is things like our material possessions. It's our smartphones and the digital lives that we lead on those phones. It's the pursuit of physical beauty and a certain kind of physical appearance. It can be our feelings. It can be money. It can even just be ourselves. It's anything that we give the preeminent position and precedence to in our lives. That can be an idol. And unfortunately, unfortunately, we are really, really adept at doing that. I say that shamefully. I say that personally. That we are really good at making things into idols. That we take things that God has given us, things that He intended to be for our good, and we twist them. We end up making them into an idol. I think about in Numbers chapter 21, Moses, by the direction of God, makes a bronze serpent. And that bronze serpent is designed to provide healing to the people while they are in the wilderness. We sometimes wonder what ended up happening to that bronze serpent. But we're reintroduced to that bronze serpent just a few centuries later when the people of Israel in 2 Kings chapter 18 are now bowing down and worshiping that bronze statue. You see, we can make an idol out of anything. And we do. We make idols out of all kinds of things today. Which is why I'm really pressing here. And in fact, I'm, I'm even lingering here a little bit. Because the truth of the matter is... If we don't search within our hearts right now, and if we don't think very seriously right now about idolatry in the heart, if I can't find something in my life that has kicked God off of the throne, or at the very least is threatening to kick God off the throne of my heart, then number one, I'm probably not being very honest with myself. And number two, I probably don't really understand Christianity. Because thirdly, whenever somebody asks the question, well, well, why is this idolatry stuff such a big deal? What's the, what's the big issue here? Well, it's because idolatry and Christianity, they cannot coexist. They just cannot. They are entirely incompatible. Look with me in the New Testament again in Acts the 19th chapter. In Acts chapter 19, the Apostle Paul is in the city of Ephesus doing what he always does. He's preaching the gospel. And that preaching comes into direct conflict with the idol, idol community and the local idolatry that's going on there in Ephesus. In Acts chapter 19, there is a man by the name of Demetrius, who's a silversmith and who kind of makes his living in the idol business. He gathers together some of the other town's craftsmen and he says, Hey guys, we got a problem here with this Christianity stuff. In Acts chapter 19, look in verse 26. In Acts 19 and in verse 26, he says, You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, 
but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. I want you to please notice that Demetrius does not say, well, we hear that there's a new religion in town, Christianity, and lots of folks seem really interested in Christianity, and while yes, that seems to be hurting our bottom line, guys, I... I guess we just might as well learn to coexist with Christianity. Let's just see if we can make idolatry and Christianity just kind of work together. No, that's not what Demetrius says. Demetrius says, we need Christianity gone. We need it out of here. Because what Demetrius recognized, just as you and I need to recognize, is that idols and being a Christian, they don't mix. The gospel is at war with anything and everything that would oppose God and that would oppose our desire to take something into the place of God into our lives. The gospel is all about us recognizing that our greatest need, our only true source of joy and fulfillment and contentment and security and satisfaction in life is found in a relationship with the God of heaven. The gospel is all about cleaning everything else out so that we can then be filled with God and His things and His Spirit. That means the idols have to go out so that the gospel can get in. But of course, idols idols never go away quietly. Idols don't leave without some kind of a fight. You know, idols have a way of just kind of hooking themselves into our lives. They hook themselves into our hearts and into our emotions They hook themselves into our language and our daily vernacular. They hook themselves into our daily routines, our activities, our decisions that we make. In fact, in Psalm 115 and in verse 8, the psalmist there says that idolaters actually end up becoming like their idols. That is, they just become ingrained into who and what we are. And so for the gospel to come along and to say, hey, we got to get these idols out... Well, that's going to create some conflict. That's going to cause maybe a war to break out. That's going to create friction. In fact, it might even start a riot as it did in the city of Ephesus in Acts 19. Because idols don't just give up. And idols don't just quietly go away because we said, hey, we want you to go away. Instead, the idols of our heart, they constantly pull at us. They are constantly begging and craving our attention. They are always at odds with the way of Jesus Christ. I can actually show you that. Look in Luke chapter 9. In Luke the ninth chapter, I want you to watch how Jesus confronts idolatry in Luke chapter 9. And I want you to notice once again, there's no statues here in Luke chapter 9. There's no graven images. There's no idol temples in Luke chapter 9. But what there are in Luke chapter 9 are idols of the heart. In fact, we might even be able to relate to some of these idols. In Luke chapter 9, I'm reading in verse 57... In Luke chapter 9 and in verse 57, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, verse 58, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What about your idols? Do you have the idol of comfort and luxury? Well, Jesus says you can't have that if you're going to follow me. Verse 59, To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. 
And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Have you made an idol out of your family? Now Jesus says that idol's got to go if you're going to truly follow me. Verse 61. Jesus continues on. Yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus says again and again and again, Your idols must go so that the gospel and the kingdom can get in. In fact, I think that this understanding about idols really helps to explain what's going on with the rich young ruler in Luke the 18th chapter. Would you turn over to Luke chapter 18? In Luke chapter 18, there are some people who have read the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler who think that Jesus is just kind of, I don't know, just kind of rude to this guy. But i got to tell you, I think Jesus recognized that there was something going on in this man's heart that was just rotten and evil. I think Jesus smelled an idol here. And so in Luke chapter 18, we read beginning in verse 18. In Luke 18 and in verse 18, a ruler came and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, and honor your father and your mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. What you're looking at there in verse number 22 is the battle between God and idols. In fact, in verse 22 is Jesus' call for this man to set his idol down and then put the Lord upon the throne of his heart. And I want you to notice about this man that this guy is not some filthy, reprehensible, pagan worshiper. No, he's he's actually a pretty good guy. He's a church-going fella. He's a moral man, a respectable man, an upstanding citizen, the kind of guy who would never fall down before a graven image. Here's a guy who would never worship a metal statue. And yet, despite all of that, in verse 23, he was an idolater. Jesus demanded that his idol would have to go because idols and Jesus, they don't get along. It's cats and dogs. It's oil and water. It's fire and ice. Idols and Christianity, they can never somehow be reconciled. And yet even as I say that, I am painfully aware that many times, many times we do try to have both. We come down to see God on Sunday because, hey, the Lord's good. God's real. God exists. God's deserving of some praise and some honor and give Him a little bit of worship as well. So we come down on Sunday to please God and to make Him happy. But then we walk right out those doors and we then go and visit our idols on Monday because we want to keep our idols and keep God the same. And we kind of hope that we can have the best of both worlds without the two of them ever crossing. We don't want our idols to know about God. And we certainly don't want God to know about our idols. We don't want Him to know what we're doing Monday through Saturday. And that is the challenge for us. But the fact of the matter is, as much as we try, that is never, ever going to work. 
It'll never work. Because ultimately, the Word of God, the Gospel comes along, and it confronts us, and it says, only God can be in that premier position. Only God should be occupying that much real estate in your mind, and in your mouth, and in your actions, and in your heart. Only God can bring you the fulfillment that you are seeking. And so Christian, it's the moment of decision. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Make up your mind. Is it God or is it your idol? You know, Jesus said in Mark chapter 12 and in verse 30, that if I'm going to love God, I, I can't just love God with a little sliver. No, He says that I have to love Him with all of my heart and my mind and my soul and my strength. And if I'm doing that, then what that means is, is that means that there can't be any room at all for any idol in my life. That's why you and I need to be searching right now within our hearts And we must come to detest and abhor anything that would threaten to interfere between our relationship with our God. Now let me conclude this morning with a a series of very pointed questions that one author put together. I didn't put these questions together. But I think these questions very directly and very sharply, they challenge us And they cause us to think about any idols that might be taking up residence in our hearts. Number one, what is it that preoccupies and rules my thoughts and my time? What is it that compels me? What is it that controls me? What is it that motivates me? What is it that drives me? What is it that dominates my daily conversation. What is first in my schedule? What is it that gives me a sense of of worth and being? What is it that defines my identity? What is it that I crave and desire most of all? And furthermore, what is the one thing that I just could not bear the thought of not having? What is the one thing that if I lost it, I just absolutely would not know what to do with myself because I do not have that thing anymore? Are you thinking? If the answer to any of those questions is something other than God, then you may very well have identified an idol of the heart. And while that idol, it may not be made of gold, it may not be made of silver, it may not be sitting as a statue on the mantle in your house, now is the time. Now is the time to tear it down. And as God told Israel long ago, now is the time to devote that idol to destruction. Now in just a few moments, we are going to be led in a song of invitation. And that song is designed to invite you to lay down whatever idols you might be clinging to and to give them all up and to make the one choice that needs to be made and that is to choose Jesus. If you are not a Christian, we are encouraging you to turn away 
from idols, turn away from sin, turn away from the things of this world and turn to the Lord. The Bible word for that is repentance. And then be immersed in water. The Bible word for that is baptism. And to do that so that all your past sins can be washed away, you can come up out of that water something new, you can be a Christian, you can be in the family of God. You need to understand that no one and no thing in this world can ever bring about the cleansing and the joy and the hope and the peace and the satisfaction that your soul needs other than Jesus. Only Jesus can bring that. And He is calling you to come to Him right now. If you are a Christian, you have obeyed those first principles. But brother or sister, somewhere along the way, you have allowed other things to creep back into the picture. They've interfered in your commitment and your devotion to the Lord. Then this morning, you need to know. You need to know how God feels about that. In fact, you already know. He hates it. He is a jealous God and with good reason. He wants the entirety of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Give it back to Him. If we can help you in some way, pray with you, encourage you, help you to serve the Lord in a better way, then we stand ready to do that as well. Whatever your need may be this morning, you simply need to come to the front and make that known. Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.